Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. That's been my like highlight of working in the gaming industry, being able to meet so many different wonderful people with so many different wonderful experiences and even mm-hmm. experiences that aren't so wonderful, but being able to create spaces where we can comfortably be vulnerable and experience these things and develop authentic friendships. That has been one of my favorite things in the industry. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Let's get started as we always do with our Patreon shoutouts. This is our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier for the month of February, because it is somehow fucking March already. How? Uh, today, we'd like to say a very, <laughs> very big thank you to Val, Genevieve, Lindsay, Grace, Jackie, Ben, and Pimhatai. Remember, if you lovely listener want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month and get access to a monthly bonus episode of the show. It's just Spencer and I chatting it up for your listening pleasure. And if you're a fan of what we do here on Pixel Therapy, please consider sharing us with your friends and family rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or you can even write into the show by emailing us at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you all, anytime. Mm-hmm. All right, Spencer, it's time to get cozy. It's time to pull up an armchair. Feel free mm-hmm. to lie down on the couch. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk <laughs> about our feelings. How are you today? I'm okay, I'm okay. Yeah? Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sure. Like every week. Can relate. Yeah. Like <laughs> like the one before it and the one to come. Um I think it's one of those weeks where I'm reminded that uh, you know, video games aren't gonna save the world. No. But they can provide ways to cope with the world or make sense of the world mm. or be in the world without <laughs> With, and taking a break from the world. And so yeah. I am grateful to them for that this week. <laughs> yeah. That resonates. <laughs> it's a lot. There's a lot going on outside yeah. the four walls of my safe little cozy privileged existence. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Scary out there. Yeah. Scary out there. But uh, yeah, it feels weird to be like, I'm doing good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, doesn't feel fair, but I'm doing good. Yeah. And I went to, I had a doctor's appointment this week. Oh, I self-care. <laughs> self-care. I haven't had like a physical basically since before the pandemic started. Mm. Um, oh, I my. moved last year and I've, now I've got a new doctor and went and saw the new doctor for the first time. Nice, got a tetanus nice. booster. Hey. Got some blood drawn. Good to have. Good <laughs> to cl- do. Got a clean bill of health. Everything's good. Good, I've been, good. I've been, 
tip top shape. Uh, but yeah, that was that was an experience. Uh, God, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're in tip top shape. <laughs> me too. Me too. It's like really, I don't feel like it. I yeah. feel like everything is. They're like, nope, blood work came back good. Bye. It's <laughs> like, all right. So I only feel like I'm taped together and running on fumes. Good to know. Thanks, yeah, body. Just all in my head. All in my yeah. head. Spencer, we've been playing some video games. Yeah, we have. Um, been playing a couple couple video <laughs> games. Really, just two video games. Yeah, just two. I mean, not the two that some might think. Like, I know it's been a big release <laughs> month. <laughs> yeah, so some people might be like, my God, you're t- two-fisting Horizon Forbidden West and Elden Ring? No. When do you sleep? <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. Elden Ring, though. Siren Song. Uh, mm-hmm. Going to probably get to that at some point. But no, we've been playing Horizon Forbidden West. Uh, which we uh, alluded to on last uh, last time around, last podcast, and um, we're neither one of us are finished with it. She's I th- massive. Think I'm got about thirty ish hours in. Do you know yeah. roughly where you're at? I think I'm like twenty five hours in, but I feel like story wise, I'm probably much further behind you because I keep getting <laughs> distracted. By... A lot of question marks. Yeah, I feel like this this installment is um it. The scale of side quests and things in the map, it almost reminds me of like Assassin's Creed Valhalla and its borderline overwhelmingness. Mm. Um, but sorry, we can go on. No, with no, the, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> easing us into this the is a conversational condo. podcast. So <laughs> you're just having a conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we we've been playing Horizon Forbidden West. So today we thought we'd give you some initial impressions on Horizon Forbidden West. This won't be our full conversation about Horizon. Uh, we both uh, really want to finish the main narrative and kind of come back. So I don't think mm-hmm. we're going to be commenting too much on the narrative in this conversation, but more just talking about our initial impressions of the world, the gameplay um general impressions of of that kind of stuff and then uh we also played a little game called a musical story that mm-hmm. came out this past week um which is just a short little indie game uh we wanted to give y'all a little something a little something yeah. a little Some spice range. A little no one range. can say we don't have range <laughs> no one can say that we don't have range so we're playing b- big beefy boy horizon and then tiny little indie little game smiley, a little tiny story. beefy boy <laughs> <laughs> a little tiny beefless boy. boy. Beef. Okay, yeah, the vegan tiny option. Vegan boy. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, so let's start with Horizon Forbidden West. Spencer, you said you're about 25 hours in. What is your impression of the game so far? Yeah. So, um, just to remind folks, a little little set dressing here. Mm-hmm. Um, dress, dress the set. <laughs> dress that set. You play as Aloy, a blood haired warrior. They call her blood haired in the game, so I thought that was fun. That's kind of gross. Uh, <laughs> and she is a person who has grown up in this uh, society where a thousand years after the fall of humanity. Um, Humanity has been reduced to, uh, you know, kind of primitive, um, technologically wise, uh, nomadic societies after the fall of um, this huge AI takeover. Um, Climate change was ravaging the earth. And so this big company um, put together this plan where they would kind of create these machine animals whose jobs were to revegetate and uh, make the earth inhabitable for animals and people again through t- this large terraforming initiative. So these machines all look kind of like different animals and they'll have different functions um, from like 
churning the earth and making soil uh, plantable to like cleaning the air and the water. Um, they got hacked, long story short, <laughs> and it didn't go as planned. And the machines went bad, you know, because their lights turn from blue to red when they're in bad oh, mode. No. And they just fucked up all the shit. And humanity, like the apocalypse happened anyway. Um, and so Aloy, the main character of this game, is part of like the remnants of, of humanity that's left behind. Um, and she uh, happens to be a clone of the woman who kind of invented the initial um, program that was meant to save Mm -hmm. the world. And in her reality, in her present, um, she's finding that the world is veering towards apocalypse yet again. And someone has sort of influenced the machines to the point where um, their terraforming functions have been overridden. They are actively destroying the earth and rapidly speeding up the timeline towards which the earth is approaching yet another climate disaster. And so Aloy is doing what she can with her arrows and spears uh, (laughs) and what she can salvage from this technology to kind of push back against this overwhelming force. So I just want to applaud uh, the succinct way you were able to oh. lay out the the narrative there. A friend Thank of mine you. asked me to explain the plot of Horizon to him uh, <laughs> actually earlier this week, and I then regaled him with a 45-minute oh my God. <laughs> like, so listen, a baby is born. <laughs> oh, I really did. I was like, all right, so we start. And I was like, and this is what you know at this time, but this is what's actually going on behind the scenes. Uh <sighs> Yep. So the you know. camera pans over ruined <laughs> apo- ruins of uh, highly technologically advanced society. So yeah. anyway, just want to applaud your succinct summary there, uh, and that you didn't take us through a ninety-minute epic. <laughs> That'll be that's for our Patreon subscribers. Oh, there we go. Yep. <laughs> My uh, Horizon fan fiction. Um, no, but um, I guess uh, so. The first game came out in twenty sixteen. Seventeen. 2017. So it's been a, f- a few years. And um, I guess at the end of the first game, Aloy saves uh, the world from machine destruction. In this game, it starts right after the end of the first game. Mm-hmm. You learn that Aloy sort of basically, um, she realized that an ally that she'd been working with in the first game wasn't completely honest with her. Mm -hmm. And um, he had his own agenda. And so when Aloy thought she was destroying the threat that was going to eradicate humanity, she found out that she actually just ended up helping this ally, this (laughs) Aloy's ally. Um, (laughs) She helped this person just sort of transfer the evil AI into like a futuristic USB port that he could then (laughs) use to like use it for his own machinations, which we have yet to Mm -hmm. learn what they are. So that's kind of what's setting up the plot of game two is that she didn't actually save the world. She just delayed it and, or she just delayed its end. And she needs to find this guy who was her friend and figure out what he's trying to, what he thinks he can do by holding on to this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are also, there's also a mysterious other threat emerging. So <laughs> I think one of the things that I initially love about this game is just that juxtaposition of you really feel the your smallness as a, mm. as a human being who has very primitive weaponry like you basically salvage parts from machines to build your armor build your weapons but you're using spears arrows um 
like slingshots against these massive um, metal and and acid and fire <laughs> breathing machines uh, that are very fast and strong. And so like one of the things that makes the game technically challenging is um, you can't just go in spear blazing, hacking and slashing your way through these battles. It's a combination mm-hmm. of stealth um, and really strategic usage of your, mach- of your weapons, um, cycling through various ones and also targeting weak spots and, and really approaching each machine uh, holistically, if you will, to take it down in a way that makes sense. Um, and uh, I should mention that Something Aloy also has is something called a focus. It looks like a Bluetooth that she wears <laughs> on her ear, and it allows her to scan her surroundings and get information about enemies, see things that are um, left behind by what what humans in her life call the old ones, which are the people who um, died out a thousand years before that created this technology. Um, this game is also set in a approximation of the American West. Um, so you're basically traveling um, from uh, Aloy's home, which is insinuated to be like the East coast, Northeast of the U S traveling across deserts, canyons, forests, uh, basically this area spanning from like what was, what once was Las Vegas, Nevada, all the way to San Francisco. Um, so it's a vast open world. And um, so you know, that challenge uh, was something that I really like about the game, that juxtaposition and that feeling of, wow, I really feel like I'm overcoming insurmountable odds. Um, it has taken me a bit to sort of ease back into the combat and not feel like a total noob. Mm-hmm. Um, I am appreciative of there's expanded options for making the combat more approachable in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of accessibility settings that kind of took away from the more... Um, time-based or like if it's virtually impossible for you to to move with the speed uh or precision that would require you to be constantly firing shots while you're rolling and dodging and doing all these other things like they they make it a lot more approachable in that way um i do find that i'm i don't know struggling a bit with oh my gosh like it's a learning curve i feel um so Mm -hmm. maybe i'll pause there like how are you how how are you sort of easing back into the combat and mechanics of things? Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, when the game, well, I, I still, I continue to be surprised by the difficulty. And I guess mm. I remember it being challenging before. I think they've added just a lot more. Like, yeah. I don't, and I don't necessarily know yet if it's, if that's good or bad, um, but they've added more machines. It feels like there's more, Uh, Something you sort of touched on, but just to clarify, you know, when you're fighting the machines, you initially want to scan them with your focus and then you can go into a detailed menu that Mm. will show you uh, all the different parts that are identifiable on the machine. Like it'll have canisters sticking out Mm. or um, like parts of it that are these like white resource containers or a part, a piece that like controls certain attacks that it can do and you can kind of pick and choose if you want to target specific parts of the machine to you know maybe if i take out this part it will uh nerf one of the attacks that the machine does but that will also destroy a resource that i might be Mm. able to get if i leave that piece intact so if the fight is harder i have an opportunity to possibly get better loot but maybe i won't even be able to take the machine out if i don't disable this attack because this attack is so powerful that every time i get hit with it i just die Mm -hmm. so you're kind of like making those strategic decisions and then 
you make all of those decisions and then you get into the battle and it's just like fuck she's like yeah. throwing everything you have at it. yes <laughs> yeah. sometimes how i feel i'm like okay okay i'm gonna target i'm gonna target this specific spot and then i'm gonna mm-hmm. hit here because that's a weak spot and then i'm gonna knock off this piece of equipment so that i can get this and make do this upgrade to my bow and arrow and then the fucking this you know grizzly bear-esque machine just charges at me and i'm just like i just uh, throw my it. explosive spear at it and yeah I'm just like, blah, die, die, yeah, die. yeah. <laughs> so it, i don't know i'm having fun with it but it's definitely it's definitely challenging and i definitely remember being challenged by it in the original game especially the i think that this game takes a lot from the dlc that they added because mm. i remember playing the original game and there were moments of challenge, but by and large, I felt like I was like, at least I got to a point where I was Mm -hmm. pretty easily. uh, I I just remember the first time I like took down a Thunderjaw without it even hitting me. And the Thunderjaws are basically the equivalent of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. They're Mm -hmm. one of like the most powerful, like large enemies in the, in the game. And I took one down and, very easily and i was like okay i've ascended yeah and then i went and played the dlc for horizon zero dawn a few months later and the polar bear-esque uh robots were just like destroying my shit mm-hmm. and it feels like they took kind of all the combat in this and kind of kicked it up i the some of the most difficult enemies in the game are the ones that will just charge at you mm-hmm. um very quickly and repeatedly and sometimes it can feel a little like the the width of their attacks feels Mm. a little unfair. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like even if I'm dodging, if I'm not dodging at exactly the right time, I'm still going to get hit. Um, And some of the enemies that shoot uh, fire, orbs of light, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that have ranged attacks, you can't just run and expect not to get hit, which I do think you could do in the first game. Like as long as I was mobile, I could pretty much avoid getting hit. And in this game, it's like, yeah, you can run. Um, he's going to anticipate the fact that you're running and just shoot where you're going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I still get hit anyway. And so I feel like I'm still adapting to some of that. But I haven't yet felt like I need to bump the difficulty down. I'm definitely over leveling like crazy, mm-hmm. though. Um, you have to. I feel like you have yeah. to. I think, like, I think, yeah, I don't know who the person is. I'm sure there are people <laughs> who are playing things right at the level, but that's not me. Like, I'm playing on mm-hmm. normal difficulty, but then I'm trying to ease the challenge for myself by over-leveling and focusing on doing side stuff and getting better armor and gear so that I feel better prepared. And I do think the game wants you to do that. The other issue I'm having, though, with the the upgrade systems with the game is that I feel like it's... I feel like it's more difficult to tear resources off yep. of enemies in this one. I'm just not finding, I remember that being like a huge part of my strategy in the first mm. game and was just constantly knocking resources off of, and, and just to be specific, tear means you can get weapons that specifically do rather than doing damage to a part of a machine. It is focused on removing that part of the machine. So it removes it intact and then you can pick it up and use it. And I've been trying to use that strategy in this game and I'm not by and large having much luck mm-hmm. with it. I feel like it takes a lot more tear damage to remove valuable pieces from at least the higher tier machines. Um, yeah, I feel a lot more like someone throwing handmade arrow mm-hmm. like resource weapons at a literal... <laughs> artificial intelligence that yeah. can predict my every move and mm-hmm. also has armor. Like I feel like in the first game I yeah, like I felt more equal, but in this one it the, the distance between what I'm working with and what I'm up against feels so much more 
realistic. Yes. And they've added um, several key enemies that are just Mm -hmm. enormous. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way they've played with scale in this game, I think, is pretty impressive. Specifically, the this isn't really a spoiler because they've shown this enemy in the in the trailers, but the Slitherfang, which is the giant snake, Mm -hmm. the way that thing moves and the, all the intersecting pieces of it, it, it like go look up a video of the slither thing mm-hmm. because it's it's really impressive the way it moves and it, it moves like an actual snake and it is huge and fast mm-hmm. and will target target you so specifically so i don't know i'm enjoying it <laughs> but it. i do think there's a difficulty uptick that i yeah. like either i just got really bad at video games between the first one and this one or the or the game legitimately did get it. more challenging yeah yeah no i do feel like in this one too i'm i'm really feeling um the <laughs> impression of uh like when you say when you mentioned the scale of enemies um i i f- I felt like I was playing like God of War in some of the in some of the fights. Like I, yeah. I'm getting like Kratos vibes from how Aloy is sort of like approaching these massive enemies. Um, and I'm also seeing like you know some like Breath of the Wild influence um, and Assassin's Creed, like I said. Um, and I felt like when I played the first game, I, I don't know, something about it felt very. And this isn't this isn't necessarily a critique. Like I think the first mm-hmm. game it felt very unique and, and new in what it was doing. And I know now I've played the first game. This is the sequel. And I, it just, uh, the pieces that it, the sports drawing inspiration feels a little bit more like it feels like a triple A sequel. Whereas the first one felt a little bit more like um, it had those indie roots. Um, so th- mm. that was just an, an impression I've had that I found interesting. Um, it has leveled up in a lot of ways. Um, maybe let's talk about. Aloy a bit and how she's coming off in the sequel and, and sure. um, how she's grown and changed. Um, um, yeah, I, I think one of our early conversations was around um, some of the character NPC impressions of Aloy. Like, I thought maybe you could speak to like where she's at in this sequel, where she's starting from and what her relationships are looking like now. Yeah, sure. So as you alluded to, the game picks up uh, pretty shortly, just a few months after the events of the first game. And you learn pretty early that essentially, you know, the first game ended, there's big fight. Everyone was celebrating, thinking that they had won. They'd staved off the end of the world. And Aloy just kind of peaced out, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of abandoned all of the friends that she'd made in the first game because she, I mean, because she learned that the threat wasn't fully over, but she kind of just left. She kind of just ghosted yeah. everybody and didn't really partake in the celebration, didn't tell her friends what was going on or or where she was going and just left. And so mm-hmm. I do think the game starts from this place of uh, her reconnecting with a lot of characters from the first game and all of them kind of be like, where the fuck did you go? Like, why yeah. did you, why did you just leave? Like, why are, why aren't you accepting our help? Why didn't you tell us what was going on? Um, we we thought we were your friends and we want to help you when whatever comes next. And the first uh, portion of the game is really centered on her kind of pushing them away. Um, I think I'm interested. I'm very interested to see where they take this narratively. I think, um, Aloy is a main character that, by and large, uh, a lot of reviewers don't seem to love. They mm-hmm. find her kind of, like, tolerable. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure yet where I stand with her in, in this current game. I think she's a person who is deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's intentional. And I guess my my end perspective of her will be on whether or not the game addresses it 
and acknowledges that she's flawed and that that's intentional or not. Um, because right now, like I could just be reading these things as like a person who has been to therapy and a person who like recognizes some traits in Aloy and myself and, and seeing like, okay, this is a person who has been through a lot of trauma, who was raised in a really isolated environment, who was ostracized from people and her culture, um, who feels, who has this uh, immense weight put on her that like no one could possibly bear of mm-hmm. being this clone of this old world scientist and feeling like she's the only person who can fix and save the world and feeling like she's got to carry that and hold that. And none of that is a responsibility that any one person could possibly hold. And Mm -hmm. the way she carries that, I think is very relatable of just trying to feel like you have to just do it. Mm. Um, And that you can't accept help. Like a lot of that resonates or, feels familiar to me. Mm -hmm. But I guess I want the game to address that those feelings aren't um, necessarily real, that you have to work through that, that you have to learn to accept help. Um, And it seems to be moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Like I find myself empathizing a lot with Aloy and, um, I, I think, you know, the fact that she ghosts people because she wants to protect them or because she feels like she's the only one who can get the job done. Um, I can certainly relate to, you know, where that where her social anxiety comes from or where her um, sort of martyr complex kind of comes from. Um, at the same time, I I do find myself sort of disagreeing with her more in this game than I did in the first, like in the first, um, I think also the the scope of her journey has widened a lot. And I think in the first game, I, you know, she was just coming of age and just sort of breaking out from this isolated state in which she was raised. Like she was essentially raised like on her own as an outcast from her own um, tribe they're uh, tribes of nomadic humans in this world and uh, or they're not all nomadic, but they, well, they all kind of like salvage and go around. Uh, but anyway, like she was raised completely alone, like as a child, like of course that would affect how you relate and form attachments to others. Um, and mm-hmm. it was largely about her figuring out who she was and why she'd always felt this way. And, and also understanding the meaning behind the technology that she had discovered. Um, and in this game, it's tough because in a lot of ways she has knowledge that no one else has. Mm -hmm. Um, Like from the remnants of these technologies left behind, there are things like holograms or mysterious um, ruins of old laboratories or factories that to any person who had no idea where this technology came from, of course they might think this is something supernatural or godlike. And Mm -hmm. so you see a lot of people in the world Aloy lives in thinking of these phenomenon that they see um, as being, uh, you know, this spiritual presence, seeing a, a hologram that still is is persisting after a thousand years and thinking that they're seeing, you know, a vision or a spirit. Um, and like all of that makes sense for, for what these folks are working with um, and that the world that they've been raised within. And for Aloy, she's sort of seen behind the curtain and knows that none of this is from a, a from a God, that no one is is going to 
save them. They have to save themselves. And she feels like it's her duty to do that. Um, but I think sometimes the way that that comes across is um, just being really short and dismissive mm-hmm. with people. Um, like mm-hmm. when people um, come to her and and their religion enters into the conversation or, or they are a belief that they hold comes up. She's like a very immediately, like very dismissive, like there are no gods. This isn't like, like scoffing or sighing and annoyance. Um, and I, it's tough because I, I, I get where she's coming from. Like I, she must feel like a Cassandra, like feeling like she knows the answers and these, and people are so far behind where she is that it's mm-hmm. stressful to hope that she's going to be able to save the world <laughs> in time uh, and bring folks up to speed. But at the same time, I, I also, f- it, I just, I wish, um, I don't know. I, I find myself having a harder time being on this long road trip with her because she doesn't take any breaks to have fun. She doesn't take any moments where she lets her hair down a bit. And I think in a game as long as this one, um, like I, like I was thinking back, because the other game I've played that's been this long or this detailed was Assassin's Creed Valhalla a couple years back. And the main character of Eivor in that game, being a Viking, there's this air of like, Yes, they have stuff to do and they have a conquest and they have a mission, but they're also happy to like go fuck off for a night and like drink or like party or like hook up or tell stories. Uh, they're very like gregarious. And um, and I know that there's a difference there in how that character was raised. Like there's things, there's differences in trauma there. But I also found that like, uh, I just feel like with Aloy as in the driver's seat as this main character, I feel as though I too am on this highly stressful, relentless, lonesome mission and not feeling like there's any other characters I can talk to. Like there's no way to get away from Aloy's mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I feel like is wearing on me in a way that I didn't experience in the first game. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm finding myself like, butting heads philosophically with her more or wanting Mm. her to be more empathetic to others in the way that they are relentlessly empathetic to her and are always trying to be like, Hey, I know you don't have any time for me and you just want to get away from me as quickly as possible, but I just want you to know I'm in your corner. Like I want to see her sort of extend some of that care back. Um, I don't know. That's a lot. Yeah. I think, I think that's (laughs) valid though. And I, yeah, I'm not sure where you're at narratively in the story. I think I've seen inklings of them doing that a bit with her. I still want her to have more of a watershed moment. Like I'm still waiting for, um, that to be manifested more clearly and explicitly. Mm -hmm. But I do think, yeah, it's, it's tough because she clearly has empathy for people. There's plenty of side quests and stuff that you can encounter with her where she's doing things for folks that we probably didn't need to take the time mm. to do. Uh, and and there are certain side quests where she does show some empathy for the beliefs that people are, hol- are holding, even while she's kind of dismissing them. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, but like, here's why you can't do that. And I know <laughs> that you think that that's the right thing to do because of X, Y, Z, but here's how this is really works. Um, I, I definitely put a lot of it back to, especially in the way that she approaches religion. Um, She really, yeah, she doesn't have any patience for religious beliefs uh, getting in her way, but she was also specifically ostracized from her, her tribe and raised solo and like had to deal with all of that because of religion, because Mm. they believed her because the religious beliefs of her tribe 
felt that she was some sort of bad omen and therefore pushed her aside. So I think her particular irritation around the religion stuff and that being a barrier does kind of trace back to her and like her seeing that as the initial cause of her trauma too. people mm. kind of blindly believing in something that they don't understand rather than actually like helping the human being right in front of them. Yeah. And she's kind of in, she encounters that at several different points in the story too, going into different towns and cultures and seeing how their religious beliefs are actually holding them back from being able to take care of the very human needs that exist right in front of them um, and kind of relying on culture. And Mm. I think there's, I think that's worthwhile. I think there's worthwhile commentary to have there. I think it becomes (laughs) just more problematic when we start to see how the game has positioned itself using so much. um, It's not Native American iconography exactly, but the game is definitely drawing from uh, an inspiration of indigenous cultures in the Americas Mm -hmm. and using that as uh, set dressing for mm-hmm. so much of what happens in the game, for so much of the cultures, the way they mm-hmm. present, the way they dress, even the way they live, some of their beliefs, mm-hmm. it's all kind of pulled from that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that to do that without involving indigenous folks in the conversation mm-hmm. and then to also have this white futuristic woman mm-hmm. running around like dismissing everyone's belief systems, all yes. of that creates a not good tension yes in the game that i think the first game had some of this had this problem as well (laughs) and i just think it's yeah i mean there have been indigenous folks calling out that this game is like culturally appropriating Mm -hmm. i think it's not it's certainly not for me to say whether it is or isn't i personally think that folks have a good case Mm -hmm. for it being cultural appropriation i think you can't look at this game and not see the influence Mm -hmm. of indigenous cultures on the way the the different tribes and even the language that they use tribe brave Mm -hmm. there's the savage slur Mm -hmm. thrown around um occasionally Uh, they did they have lessened the amount that that gets used in this game than they did in the first game but i still think it's it, the fact that it's there at all, yeah, especially after the criticism that the first acceptable. game got, is yeah. really dis- really upsetting and disappointing. Yeah. And, yeah, the fact that the game is not... I don't know. The, the game developers, the game itself is not uh, addressing any of that at all. Not even... They're, they're trying to pretend like they're making this in a vacuum where it's not drawing on indigenous cultures, but mm-hmm. it so very clearly is. And so when and you combine I- that... Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, just to, to take that a step further, I think something you brought up when we were talking about this a few days ago was the way that the game is insinuating that there's some sort of connection between indigenous people and sort of this um, less technologically advanced or less intellectually mature belief system. Like, like it's a completely... Uh, like it feels like they're feeding into harmful stereotypes around what it means to be an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. And um, something you said was that there's often this um, thing in white settler narratives 
that Indigenous people no longer exist, that they Mm -hmm. were a relic of the past and that they, you know, through European colonialism were brought up to date or modernized or, and, and brought into, you know, fucking settler society. Mm-hmm. When the reality is that like indigenous people were there before have continued to exist and exist now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this game feeds into this white supremacist idea that like indigenous culture equates with like not knowing or not mm-hmm. <laughs> not technologically advanced yeah like uh yeah it, it whether it's a, <sighs> i don't think it's an intentional thing that they did but i think you can't i i find it I don't hard know that we to say separate it's those things how can we say it's unintentional though because they crafted this world very intentionally using those kinds of imagery and language like i i don't know i don't know that i feel like we can say that I guess all I mean is I don't think that the developers of Horizon mm. Forbidden West said what we want this game to say is that indigenous people are like X. Mm-hmm. But they absolutely pulled in the stereotypes and the beliefs that they subconsciously already had around what yeah. indigenous culture looks like and yeah. applied that to the way the vast majority of the characters and cultures in the game exist Mm -hmm. and they did that without consultation Mm -hmm. with actual indigenous folks yeah um without considering what indigenous futurism like writers and thinkers might have to say about what a Mm post-apocalypse society could look like Mm -hmm. in this scenario yeah and i think that's inherently where the problems come in Mm -hmm. and i think it's with that in that frame of reference as a person sitting in the U S and playing this game yeah, and seeing these like very obvious allusions mm-hmm. to native American iconography, I can't fully separate the idea that that's what they're, that's a cultural touchstone that they're using mm-hmm. for so many of these people that Aloy is interacting with. And then for her to also be, talking down to them yes in many different scenarios yeah it chafes it makes it hard to like i can't just set any of that aside right it's a problematic byproduct of the world that they've built mm-hmm. um, right. and so even though i'm enjoying the game and enjoying the story and there's plenty that i can empathize with aloy about and can like her as a character for xyz it also like it's it's something that is ever present and I'm constantly clocking and just being like, hmm, mm-hmm. I wonder why they decided to do this like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I finally she kind of comes off like this atheist, rational, talking head, like YouTube personality. Like I just it just yeah, like you said, it chafes. And I think, you know, they made the decision to set this world within the American West and mm-hmm. with, you know, the West was built by black folks, indigenous folks, Chinese folks who were exploited and treated horribly racistly by white Americans who like to pretend that cowboys 
built the West. And I just feel like to have a game set here. Sorry, I'm I'm like I'm already primed and on edge about that because of the comments coming out this week about the power of the dog, uh, a movie about the about the American West that's a little gay and has some gay cowboys in it. Just. <laughs> Just check it. Just watch it. Um, but um, uh, basically, Sam Elliott and oh, a white actor with a big mustache who um, has acted as a cowboy in some roles, but is literally from like Sacramento, California, or some shit, is acting like uh, movies like Power of the Dog because it has like gay shit in it. Is like not the real West, and the real West is like white dudes in cowboy hats and like that's also not the real west either so i just don't know what world he's living in so i guess i'm just like again yeah. they made the choice to build it in this setting there is so much history and and painful reality that was born in the american west and to have a game set here where yet again and even though we're a thousand years in the future we have this white person trying to tell other people using the power of logic and atheism to like (laughs) put them down like it it's hard to just completely like walk away from that so yep and and i think i think a lot of folks want to give the game a pass or kind of hand wave it because the game is set so far in the future but i just i think that um does a disservice to it's just uh, all of us i think that does Mm -hmm. a disservice to people playing this game i think it does Mm -hmm. a disservice to like anyone who thinks critically about the media they engage with Mm -hmm. yes that's the yes in the within the world of the narrative this is thousands of years in the future and like all of today's society has crumbled sure and yet this was made in and is being played in modern day context and so i think the lens that we're viewing it through is uh (laughs) is appropriate and (laughs) does matter does matter it's not like just because the game is set in the future so far in the future that it should be like inherently removed from modern day context and uh society um because we're playing it and it was created by people existing in yeah. culture and society i don't know i just hate that argument when it's like yeah but the world is completely different and it's like yeah but you realize that the world was made by people who live yeah. right here today and you're exactly. experiencing it as a person who lives right here today so exactly um, anyway, that's our initial impressions of Horizon <laughs> Forbidden West. Lots you to knew think that about. You knew, you knew we couldn't keep that short. I mean, I, you know, one sentence review right now, Spencer. Are you enjoying the game? Yes, I am enjoying the game. Okay. So it's we're beautiful. Gonna, it's, it's Oh, man. Yeah, we didn't even get to how breathtaking the world is, the, the character models, the skin textures, mm. the variety of faces and body shapes on mm-hmm. display in the game. Really mm-hmm. impressive. I'm sure we're going to talk more about Horizon yeah. uh, on our next episode as we continue to play and, and get through more of the story. But do we want to talk about a musical story for yeah, a few let's minutes? Talk, let's, uh, let's do a little palate cleanser and talk about a musical story. Okay, great. Uh, so a musical story is a game that came out just this past week um, on PlayStation, Switch, Xbox, PC, and mobile, developed by a small French indie game dev team uh, called Glitchy Studio. And it's a narrative musical rhythm game. So very dramatic departure mm-hmm. from Horizon. <laughs> Um, it's got some gorgeous, gorgeous pixel art. I think that was one of the standouts for me personally with the game. Just yeah, it looks be- almost like screen prints. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Really, really awesome. <laughs> like brush art. strokes, like ink, block, blocked colors. Like it, yeah, it's very 
dynamic and and really cool. Yes. Um, great music. The game is set in like the 60s, 70s? 70s, yeah. 70s? Okay. And um, they really like nail that whole vibe. Like and Zeppelin, aesthetic. Floyd. <laughs> yeah. Fish. Like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all original music in the game. Um, and like I said, it's a, it's a rhythm game. So you are, uh, but I'd say it's very unique presentation for a rhythm game. I think anybody who's played Rock Band or Guitar Hero, you're pretty familiar with the idea of kind of notes dropping down on the screen on kind of a grid so you can follow the time pattern and then you're hitting the buttons at the time that it looks like you're supposed to hit the buttons. Mm-hmm. This is a rhythm game that's very much designed around you actually listening to and being in rhythm with the music. Um, it takes away a lot of the visual indicators that you would usually have in a rhythm game where in some rhythm games, you could almost turn the sound off and follow the visual cues. But this game, if you're not listening to and participating, like actively understanding what the music is doing, you won't be able to actually follow the rhythm the way the pattern that you're supposed to play appears on the screen is that it will in almost a Simon says fashion, have a, a big circle on the screen and the notes will kind of appear and you'll hear them play out in order. Um, you're really just, I, I play this on PlayStation and you're just controlling it with the right and left shoulder buttons. Right. So just a couple button input. I'm not quite sure how this works on mobile or anything, but it seems like it's, I mean, you're really just working with two buttons for the entirety of the game and you'll either hit the left button, the right button, or you'll hit both at the same time. That it gives you like a like I said a Simon says round where it plays it for you once and shows mm-hmm. you the pattern and then if you actually are like counting the beats in your head <laughs> you know you're actually I felt like uh the fact that I had some musical training was actually helpful for this <sighs> I grew up playing piano and I played saxophone and band all through high school and um yeah being a table actually like count it down like okay one two three four and then play my section of the song yeah um was was really helpful. What did what did you think? What did you yeah, think of the rhythm like, mechanics? I thought I really enjoyed the sort of minimalist design and and the way that um it has this thing where if you are messing up, it'll sort of progressively introduce some visual assistance to help you mm-hmm. get the beat on track and yep. and be more successful. Um, so I appreciated the the sort of endless looping and the way that if you did mess up, it didn't mean that the song had to end. Like it, it gives you chances to to keep going and get through it. Um, so I really enjoyed the way that that mechanic was set up. I think um, I would have benefited from something like a metronome or something mm. on the screen um, yeah. just because I, as Jamie mentioned, it's like a circle and the notes are appearing around the circle. And so I would sort of take my eyes and try to follow around the line of the circle at the same speed that I thought I had done when it was first playing. And for whatever reason, I found that when I tried to make my eyes follow the circle and do the beat that way, I would often be off. But if I just like closed my eyes or just looked at the very center of the screen and just went with the beat, I would get it right. Mm -hmm. So there was something lost between the visual of the line and how much time was actually passing. Like, like there's distance between circles to indicate breaks, but they're not really reflective of the actual time that you need to pause in every situation. And so there was just like a loss of translation there that I think, um, uh, visually that made it tougher for me to actually get it right. Um, so yeah, maybe something, something to help keep the beat 
yeah would have helped but yeah i feel like that's a great point like almost like a just in the settings if you could turn on a metronome yeah i feel like could have been a big help um for folks who yeah just i i mean like i think of as i was playing the game i was like thinking like my brother who is a musician like he probably would have found this game a lot easier than i did because Mm. he just naturally has like good rhythm built in and i think this is a interesting and unique in that it's a rhythm game that i think is more designed for people who have some sort of musical like proclivity um i think if you are someone who doesn't really have good rhythm or any musical uh experience at all this might be a lot more challenging Mm -hmm. i still think it's playable because as you said i think the the way the game responds, there's no fail state in the game. You can right. mess up the piece uh, or the line as many times as you want, and it'll just keep letting you do it until you get it right. And it, yeah, like you said, it'll slowly introduce more visual cues to help you get get it correct. But if you want to actually do it right the first time, the only way you're going to do that is if you are legitimately understanding the music and able to mm-hmm. replicate it. Like it's a it's a rhythm game that prioritizes the feel of the music mm-hmm. over watching it and responding to the visual. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, I thought that was unique and interesting. Yeah. I, I was pleased with that, even though I do think, especially as you get to later chapters of the game, they make dis- some decisions that to me feel a little cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, you're getting, you get into some pieces of music where it's kind of improvisational, <laughs> Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way, the lines that they're having you play. And so the notes are being played on various upbeats and stuff that just don't even feel they're really not easily repeatable right? (laughs) off a one off. It's like Simon says this, Mm -hmm. but what Simon is like saying and asking you to repeat back is almost incomprehensible in Mm -hmm. terms of musical form because it feels like someone just riffing on their instrument. And to duplicate that after hearing it one time is really, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure there are people who can do it, but I found it just got exponential. Like I was getting frustrated at those parts because it felt cheap to me Mm -hmm. to be like, and then we'll just hit this note really randomly on this random upbeat. And then the next one's going to come on this random downbeat. And if you can't do that, just like instinctively, then you're not going to get this <laughs> yeah yeah like for a game that like you said is much more focused on feeling the music and, and being part of it and responding to it in that way i think i would have appreciated a bit more flexibility in mm. hitting the note prompts or like or like it's a maybe it's okay to hold something a little bit longer to get a sound that is unique to you or just to like feel into it and and play it the way that that you would, it almost feels like instead this game is really hammering down that to be a good musician, you have to get it absolutely perfectly every single time or it is yep. not okay, which isn't really how jam bands, like the kind of, like it's sort of portrayed that this mm-hmm. rock band you're in is a jam band who who does get together and improvise and feed off of each other. Mm-hmm. So how that then is reflected in the gameplay doesn't feel true to to how they play together in in real life or how they would if they were real people 100 percent, and i think that that is drilled home narratively by what i would say is one of the most absurd choices that the game makes which is Mm. that as we said like there's no fail state in the game you can play through the game and fuck things up constantly and you know it'll just let you keep trying until you get it right however 
if you play through an entire chapter perfectly, you get a little star. And by perfectly, I mean you hear the pattern once and then you get it exactly right the second time. And as the chapters increase, like when the game first starts, each chapter will be like one or two lines Mm -hmm. that it gives you like that. By the time you reach the end of the game, you're getting five, six, seven, eight lines of music that you have to do. And each you have to do the whole chapter perfectly to get the star. If you get all the stars in the game, it unlocks a special bonus ending (laughs) um, that is a very different ending (laughs) than what the actual ending of the game is and really seems to be saying something that I think is really problematic about what it means to be a creative person as well as a bunch of other... Spencer and I have some big issues with the narrative in this game. Mm -hmm. I think... uh, Let me just say, we're going to go into spoilers here in a second, but before we do, I think I'll just say that the narrative is about a young man who starts a band with his friends and they go on a road trip to try to play this big, their first big concert. Mm -hmm. That's the narrative arc of the game. And then chaos ensues from there. There's no dialogue in the game. It's all, it's essentially, it's kind of like watching, uh, I don't know. It probably took me two or three hours to finish it because Mm -hmm. I was trying to perfect some of the chapters, but you could probably get through this in an hour and a half to two hours. I guess it really just depends on, how well the music stuff clicks with you. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like watching a really long music video. Yeah. Um, Cause there's music throughout no dialogue, no text on the screen. There's no text to click through uh, no words. Like the game is just the music and the visuals and that's all pretty cool. But the actual narrative that they're conveying, we have some, some pretty serious <laughs> criticisms of. So I think at, at this point, um, what would you say, Spencer, should people play musical story? <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I think what it's doing, I will say for me, I had a very anxious week. And so being able to just look at circle and line and press button when circle online was like (laughs) very therapeutic for me. I I was like, I was having some panic attacks later in late this week and um, playing a game like Horizon, which is so narratively and functionally dense. Uh, Mm -hmm. it was just too much for me. And so being able to sit with this game and just be in the music for a couple hours was great. So I think for what it's doing for the uniqueness of, um, the design and how it's doing a new spin on a rhythm game, like a, like it was a bit of nostalgic, like Parappa the rapper kind of feels (laughs) too. And I, I loved it for that. Um, I think as again, someone, (laughs) who is in the world. Um, I just, I don't know. I think it could be, I think the way that it treats um, drug use and Mm -hmm. I I think there's a misunderstanding here and a potentially harmful uh, leaning into stereotypes around like um, how people engage with drugs and what, how drugs even interact with you. Like, I guess to be spoilery, um, the usage of what is heavily implied to be weed, uh, marijuana, (laughs) is throughout this game. Um, But the way that the narrative takes it and demonizes people who engage with weed, I think, borders on reckless and irresponsible and even Mm -hmm. feeds into harmful stereotypes, at least here in the U.S., about um, particularly people of color and their uh, interactions with weed. Um, like just to be clear, this podcast is a firm 
legalize, decriminalize, and release people in prison for weed charges. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that this game um, sort of just leans the complete opposite way in terms of what it's saying about that. And I, yep. I found it like, I think it could potentially be triggering for someone who um, identifies as a person of color um, and also someone who has had any interaction with weed. You're going to watch this game and be like, has anyone who worked on this game ever <laughs> smoked weed? Because that is not what weed does to people. Um, so there's that. And I, I did find it hard to, like, I, as I was playing the game, I was kind of like, they're not gonna. And then I was like, are they really? And then at the, by the end, I was like, this is unacceptable and not okay. Um, I, I think too, it also just goes into what we were saying before about like, um, I, I think it, it, it's sort of problematic in terms of what it's saying about perfection and, mm-hmm. and, and having to be perfect being the only way to success. Um, so <laughs> I, would recommend playing it with caution and also uh, us advocating you to play it is not us advocating for the beliefs of the people who <laughs> made this yeah. game. Yeah, I think I, I I fully agree with everything you just said, and I think you did a good way. I think you said it well without spoiling anything too dramatic with the narrative. But yeah, this this is a game that I think was enjoyable to play and has beautiful art. And the story kind of sucks yeah. uh, for specific reasons that we're going to dig into here in a second. And I think if you, uh, it's not a very expensive game and it's mm-hmm. out on most platforms. I think that the developer clearly has some skills in terms of the way they develop the game. I'd love to see them make another game. Yes. But I think they need to uh, get some different writers in there yeah. and maybe broaden their perspectives before they try to tell a story again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think take all of that with the grain of salt that it is. If you're looking for an interesting new take on a rhythm game, it's, it's a pretty creative uh, alternative to standard rhythm game fair, but be warned that the story is, it definitely has its problems and, and could even be, be harmful depending on your your personal situation. Mm-hmm. So I think now let's go ahead and dig into a little bit of spoilers so that we can just kind of put a pin on some of the specific feedback that we're giving and, mm-hmm. and explain why we feel the way that we do. Do you yeah. want to, do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, so I think the story starts out being very relatable. Um, the It sort of centers on a young black man who is in a band with two friends. Um, and I think something to note here is that the main character appears to be the only person of color who appears in this game. So that that's something that I think um, was a miss, a miss because um, what sort of happens is this character is depicted as... Um, smoking weed, which for a game set in the seventies is like everyone was smoking weed. Yeah. Um, but this character is portrayed as the only person in the group who smokes. Um, and very early on, it's sort of established that his smoking, um, like that his bandmates know that he does it, but they just like, don't say anything about it. Um, and as the game continues, uh, essentially the three of them decide to go on a road trip to, um, perform in a music festival for the first time where it gets kind of weird 
is that at some point in the journey, um, your main character is high and he has some sort of, the chapter is called Bad Trip. So he has a bad trip and he suddenly becomes violent, punches his bandmate to the point where his bandmate is bleeding. And then um, for the rest of the story, his bandmates are gone. He wakes up with them gone. He um, basically, you know, finds comfort in the arms of a girl that uh, was traveling with them that they met, who uh, was another, a fellow singer, a performer that they met on the road. And he gets into a car accident and wakes up in the hospital. And that's mm-hmm. the end of the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just, uh, first of all, like, like I said, like we were saying about earlier, like weed does not make you hallucinate and become violent. Like that's like a psychosis yeah. thing. Like you might expect that from something like acid or um, like if, like if, it, if the weed was like cut with something, but that's like yeah. never insinuated throughout the game. Like it always just shows him, you know, rolling a blunt and, yeah. and smoking it. Like it's just like very normal. Um, so like there's that problematic sort of assumption that like, you know, oh, doing or smoking weed turns you into a violent person. Yeah. Um, and then just the fact that this character uh, never, like, there's no, there's no resolution with those characters. Like, they're just gone mm-hmm. for the rest of the game. There's no, um, we don't, he doesn't, he never speaks. We never really even see his face. So, it just, it doesn't feel, it, it feels random. It feels um, like if these were his bandmates, like that seems like they're his closest friends. Like, why doesn't he care about what happened to them? Why did mm-hmm. they just ditch him? Like, mm-hmm. why? I think something you brought up too, Jamie, is that like throughout the game, you know, they're in bars, they're at shows, people are drinking, people uh, like there's, we see glasses, we see them throwing back shots and beer and things like that. And there's never an accompanying insinuation that alcohol is in any way negatively affecting them. It's highly normalized. When at least in my experience, the most scary and physically threatening interactions I've had with people under the influence have been alcoholics who have Mm. have become violent around me or when they drink alcohol, their demeanor completely changes. So I just found it... (laughs) it was hard for me to sort of be like, okay, this is the only person of color in this cast. It's the only person smoking weed. And yet you're depicting them as being suddenly violent out of nowhere and having no care for their fellow humans. And like, it, it really just, I didn't understand why, what I was seeing was happening. And I didn't feel like it was earned. And I also felt like in some ways that this character like was just being used like, like he looks very much like a Jimi Hendrix sort of Mm -hmm. character. Like he has a big Afro. He has the bandana around his head. He plays guitar. um, And it's just kind of like, it almost feels like an aesthetic choice and not thinking about what it actually means to bring a person of color character into your cast and, and depicting them, um, in a fair way. Like, I don't know. It Mm -hmm. really just upset me and it turned me off on the whole second half of the game. Yeah. Yep. I agree with all of that, that you just said. It is like they, it's like they thought 
<laughs> kind of similar to the conversation around Horizon. It's like folks think they can make these decisions in a vacuum and not look at how it all kind of comes together and, and what it might be saying. Yeah. And I think if you're intentionally making the decision to make your main character, a young black man, and then like, okay, and he's going to uh, smoke weed. Okay. Like there's nothing. And there's going to be a fight with the bandmates later in the game. All mm-hmm. of those decisions on their own, there's like nothing mm-hmm. really wrong with them, but it's the way they knit them. It's the way they mm-hmm. like stitch them all together. Yes. And what it feels like they're saying, it's like, okay, he's black. He smokes a lot of pot. Um, the pot is a problem for him for mm-hmm. some reason. Like it makes him not a good person. And so then he's going to like rage out on his bandmates and and break up the band what like, why <laughs> yeah and also why? like the decision to set this in the 70s when like you said like it, marijuana use was rampant especially in artist communities like yeah. that it just doesn't seem realistic in in any sense no. of, of the word and i just think like i don't understand why the drugs had to even it be in the story let alone a problem mm-hmm. um i think when they said i was so uh assuming that the drugs use was not a problem like that was yeah. so like far from my radar it was like okay yeah he's getting high that's what a musician in the 70s would do yeah. of course he comes home from a hard <laughs> day working in a fucking factory <laughs> on his feet all day of course he's gonna come home and smoke a little just to relax and yeah like <laughs> yeah i like i read it as so like okay yeah that's just a thing about him is that he smokes yeah. pot like along with probably everyone else in this world great no problem that as the story like built in the direction it was going, I was so not prepared for the marijuana to be a mm-hmm. problem. I was no, so not prepared for like him smoking to be the problem. Yeah. I, the story shows them start their road trip and they go to this bar and he meets this uh, young woman musician that he then encourages to come with them. And they immediately show that the two of them are like connected at the hip, like spending mm-hmm. all their time together. She's influencing their music. That seemed like what mm-hmm. the story would be about yeah. would be him like getting too obsessed with this girl right. and ignoring his other bandmates and trying to take their music in a different direction. So they get in a fight and then they make up at the end. That yeah. seems like an appropriate narrative arc. But instead it was like, no, actually the obsession with this new girl is not the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's got a, he's got a drug problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, really? Really? Yeah. And then, you know, we kind of touched on this pre-spoilers, but yeah, so the the game ends with him in the hospital. They don't make the concert. He doesn't reconcile with his friends that mm-hmm. the game suggests have been his lifelong friends. Yeah. And you're supposed to feel like it's a happy ending because he's still with the new girl. Like mm-hmm. she's there at his hospital bedside. But that was not happy from my perspective no. at all. It was like there was no catharsis in that. It did not feel like a a, care, a journey for him or or growth. There was no yeah. growth for him. The car accident was unrelated to his drug usage as well. So mm-hmm. if they were trying to suggest that that was some sort of a rock bottom, that didn't hit for me either. No. Like if you are telling this weird ass story about someone having really negative side effects to pot usage, like, okay. <laughs> but like even that didn't get hammered home. And then for them to be like, well, if you go through and play all of the chapters perfectly, uh, none of that bad shit will happen, and the band will actually go and play the concert. Yes, that's that's the bonus ending of the game that you can unlock if you play everything perfectly. the The band will perform the concert, and everyone will stay together. What a slap and his in drug the face. usage won't be a problem. Yeah, like what? So, in order to be a successful artist, you have to play. You have to be perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and not do drugs. Right there, you go, kids. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little bananas to me. And definitely I, I'd be curious to know 
yeah, just what the life experiences of the the Mm -hmm. game developers are, because it definitely feels to me like a game that was made by people that are either too young or too naive to Mm -hmm. have really any experience with these things that they were telling a story about. And it feels Mm -hmm. more like they made this like kind of aesthetic choice to use the seventies as like a vibe. Um, Right. And musically it really works. The music in the game is great, but uh, especially the like simlish singing <laughs> that yes. they put in it, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it feels like they didn't actually know anything about how to tell a story in that world, and maybe mm-hmm. they should have chosen to tell a story that was closer to their life experience. Totally. So play chapters one through nine because that's like <laughs> the you know the band playing together, jamming, fixing up the van, and then just kind of ignore everything that comes after that. <laughs> Yeah, or do it perfectly, and then you'll just get the good ending. Yeah, which, mm, again, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just think, like, I'm, I'm interested to see what this, this dev team does next. But yeah, I just feel like yeah. they really need to think about... I, I, I feel like game devel- this is a thing that happens, especially with smaller game developers, is way more interest. Like, you come up with a mechanic, you come up with a gameplay loop, and then you kind of just, like, slap a story on top of it. And I don't think people always think about what is my story saying? Right. (laughs) What is the, what are people learning from this? And it's not like I didn't need this story to change my life. I didn't need it to do anything, especially deep. I really think just shifting the story to being about him being obsessed with the girl instead of it being a drug problem Mm -hmm. would have been that and the band still in the band getting back together at the end. Yeah. Would have been great. Those are that's all you had to do, and I would have been fine. The story wouldn't have changed anyone's lives, but it would have been perfectly fine and enough to put these cool mechanics on and this cool artwork on and say, "Hey, that was a decent time." Yeah, Are but instead, just, they like, like actively drove yeah. it into the ground. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I don't even like if they were like, "Oh, you know, we don't." It feels too stereotypical for it to be the girl. It's like okay, then the van breaks down and they get stressed and they get in a fight because they don't know how to fix it immediately. It's like there's so many other ways this could have yeah. gone for the story within the same yep. scope of being like a 90 minute thing. Like there was just it, we it didn't need to to do this. So yeah, anyway. yep, yep, 100. percent So that's our feelings on a musical story and Horizon Forbidden West. Yeah, we're a little salty today give it a little spice a little spice but it's like spice from our hearts from our sweet hearts like I just, <laughs> you know it's like we're talking about this because we care and because yeah, like i think this game's doing something really clever yeah. with the rhythm mechanics yeah. and i w- i want to be able to recommend this game for yes. people to play and because this narrative just takes the weird left turn that it does i like feel kind of weird about telling people mm-hmm. to go play this game like yeah i don't think i don't know if people should play this game which is yeah. too bad because it's got beautiful artwork and a and a clever mechanic and i wish i could just unequivocally say go play this game absolutely uh, i mean even if it was buggy as shit i would be more apt to recommend yeah. this than like this narrative that just seems to be saying things that i really vehemently disagree with so yeah and that i think like perpetuates harmful racial stereotypes. Totally. So. <sighs> video so, games. Legalize it. Mm-hmm. Video games. <laughs> the end. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm sure y'all are tired of listening to us at this point. So we're going to go ahead and move over into our interview. Today, we're chatting with the chaotically delightful Racine Malcolm. 
Racine is a freelance community and DEI director operating in the tech and gaming industries, as well as a founder of the Games Marketing Essentials Discord community, which is for individuals working in communications in the game space. Our conversation with Racine centered on their approach to community building as an empathy-driven practice that aims to create havens for folks to grow and learn with each other. Racine spoke with us about the importance of developing individualized experiences for community members to help them feel they belong and shared why she loves doing this work in the game space specifically. We really had a lot of fun talking with Racine, and I'm sure you all will too. So without further ado, here's our interview with Racine Malcolm. Well, hello to our wonderful guests, and thank you so much for joining us in the virtual Pixel Therapy Studio. To start, can you share your name and your pronouns? Yeah. Hi, I'm Racine, and my pronouns are any all. And Racine, how do you spend your time? That is a very good question. I feel like <laughs> <laughs> I feel like from day to day it definitely varies. I feel like that's a very human sentiment, though. Every day is a new day, or sometimes you can get caught in the routine. Although, Every day is a winding road. <laughs> yeah, it could be the it could be a winding road that ends in the same loop. You know, hopefully not. I hope I have branching narratives. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah. So I guess the typical routine would be. Um, you know, COVID has made everyone a little bit more socially withdrawn. I do try to go out when I can, obviously, being respectful of COVID, um, <laughs> COVID restrictions um, that are in place. But my typical day looks like, you know, spending a lot of time with the animals that we have here because we have dogs, we have guinea pigs, we have Aww. two hamsters that are very chaotic. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had rabbits at one point, but we uh, don't anymore. Mainly, we just have a lot of dogs now. Or, well, they're all really puppies i'll say one of them sleeping over there i showed y'all earlier she's mm-hmm. like she's completely like knocked out she's like I'm just splayed on the ground very comfy <laughs> she looks like a little pancake from a distance it's so cute um aside from that definitely trying to keep up with just other um enriching things like regular professional development and then outside of work um focusing a lot on getting back into language learning so um Definitely one of my goals in life was to be a polyglot and mm. that had been derailed a couple times, but now I'm really focusing on actually learning Sanskrit because I had <laughs> a lot of different um, language focuses at one point. Like I mm. partially know French, I partially know a, a lot of romance languages. So I'm all over the place with that, but I really want to achieve full fluency in mm. one specific language, whether it's written or um, spoken fluency. So I'm focusing a lot on Sanskrit because that had a huge impact, I would say, on the way I developed growing up. So I had a lot of exposure to Hinduism um, mm. as I was growing up, not necessarily in like a constrictive, like religious sense, but more in the sense that like I would explore a lot of religions and a lot of belief systems. And so um, Hinduism definitely was one of those, um, uh, I guess, larger influences at that point in my life in terms mm. of when I was um exploring a lot of like spiritualism and spirituality and like religion as a whole and kind of delving into like philosophical things. So um, definitely consuming a lot of like the Srimad Bhagavatam or the Bhagavad Gita and like reading the English translations and feeling like I'm missing something, you know? So the original versions are obviously going to be in Sanskrit. And I feel like if I'm able to revisit that after learning it, I'm going to feel a lot more fulfilled. So that's mm-hmm. one reason. And I think also um, 
learning Sanskrit also opens up the possibility of being able to interpret other languages and dialects within the Indian subcontinent. So I think it'd be pretty cool if I could learn the foundation of them all and then go on from there to like explore more. So I, that's one thing I'm really focusing heavily on and then kind of going from there, also trying to learn classical Indian dance again, because that's something I'd also tried to learn initially and then mm-hmm. that kind of fell off. So I'm, I'm learning a lot of those things and trying to, I guess, reconnect myself with a lot of the physical activity I did growing up because I did a lot of sports. Um, I'd actually started with tennis and, you know, I went pro for a little bit there sort of. Hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I did a lot of other sports alongside that and martial arts and it's a bunch of stuff. There's a long list of things that I could give you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm trying to reconnect physically and mentally and all, all sorts of stuff like that. That's wonderful. Um, so you're a lifelong learner. And in addition <laughs> to that, you also mentioned setting aside time for professional development. What do you do for work? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, what do I do for work? So I focus heavily on community development and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in the tech and gaming industries mainly. But obviously that is not you know, DEI is not exclusive to any particular industry. Those are mm-hmm. things that you practice within your day to day. But um, yeah, those are really the two focuses. And then uh, I also fall in the like staffing and recruiting side and then also social media. But, you know, I'm kind of a, an amalgamation of all things communications. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was reading in your bio that you bring an empathy driven approach to your community management and development work within the gaming and tech space. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that means to you, what that looks like. Yeah, that can look like a lot of different things. It just really depends on, I, I suppose, who I'm working with at the time. Um, I think empathy is core. Empathy and high emotional intelligence are core to all things community. You can be extroverted, introverted, ambiverted. I mean, technically everyone's ambiverted, but they have a particular lean. Um, Mm. But I think emotional intelligence, having a high um, EQ and empathy are core parts to being a community person or a community professional, whether you're a community director, manager, um, specialist, whatever it is you could be. I think that's super important. And the way that manifests definitely is specific to every community. I mean, it could just be something as simple as just connecting with um, a lot of the the core members individually, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. There, there's so many different things you can do within a community space. Um, I really like to develop uh, connections with different people from different backgrounds in each community that I'm able to curate. And so having that understanding, being able to build those relationships and understand those perspectives and then being able to curate more individualized experiences um, for those people within the community space and having them feel like they're actually at home because that's really the point of um, communities is I, I think that's what I really want to push out into the world when I say I create empathy driven experiences. Mm-hmm. And I have, a f- I'd love to talk more about your community development work, but before we do that, I want to back up a little bit and ask, um, you know, you're working in this tech and gaming space. Um, what's your own personal history with video games? It's weird because I feel like being in Jamaica has also had an impact on that and just mm-hmm. my overall family background. Um, I never really had consoles growing up. So whenever um, people tell me about their old experiences, like I would always see other um, kids, I guess, with 
with their consoles and playing. And so I didn't have like the console experience growing up. I was more of like a PC gamer from the start. Um, mm. And I didn't even really grow up on typical games. I found myself really, really drawn to um, open world experiences where you could essentially replicate life within a virtual space. And whether that was like fantasy, sci-fi, whatever it could be. I remember at one point I was just so like, drawn into entropy universe that i played almost every single day it was a, mm. it was an it was an addiction it wasn't an addiction but it was like you know maybe you could tone down on playing it alone <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i'm so sure if you were to say more about that um that's uh, me i i have a weird way of ending sentences and i've been told about this too i like i, I just end sentences really weirdly sometimes and people expect me to continue and i'm like no, no, that's the end of the sentence. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that, that's the entire. <laughs> so, Racine, do you identify as a gamer? That is a good question because <laughs> it's the pause. Yes, it's <laughs> the pause for me. <laughs> um, I feel like. In the, in the traditional sense of what a gamer is, a person who plays games, yeah, I feel like there's definitely been a lot of overcomplication um, in terms of the definition of a gamer over the last, not even the last anything, there's just been overcomplication of what a gamer is from the very beginning. A gamer is a person who plays games. If you play games, you're a gamer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think um, a lot of the issue has been in the fact that um, games and the gaming industry as a whole has generally been um, uninclusive for the longest time. Mm. And I think that's why there's a lot of confusion about what a gamer is. A gamer is a person who plays games. Mm-hmm. Point blank. Anyone can be a gamer. And I, I feel like that level of exclusivity that has been present within the space for so long, it's it's so unnecessary. Like when, when you hear so many people trying to elaborate on what a gamer is, I'm talking about the people who are uninclusive. Like a gamer is a gamer. A gamer mm-hmm. plays games. What do you want? Do you want me to show you a formula explaining the mathematics of God? <laughs> no, a gamer is a gamer. So yeah, sure. I play games and um, I'm a gamer. Absolutely. <laughs> and to that point, um, Racine, you founded Games Marketing Essentials or GME, which is a inclusive discord community for marketers, community managers, solo devs, and those in communications of all experience levels to learn, advise, and grow. Um, what inspired you to create the GME community? Yeah, so we're actually going through a rebrand right now. Like it's a there's a bunch of cute um, logos and different things going on and fun. Um, it's actually being renamed to Games Community Garden. Awesome. And um, when initially, you know, I had co-founded that with someone, not really going to mention them in this podcast for mm-hmm. various reasons. But um, initially, the, the idea of that community was to really create a space for folks within communication to have the opportunity to share knowledge and experience a nurturing environment where they could actually develop within the space because there was a lack of a resource, like a cohesive resource um, like that at that time. So creating that space for, you know, junior community managers, moderators, different people at different stages of growth and development should have the chance to easily access learning materials. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we're kind of revisiting the project 
and how we can improve that experience for people coming in. And there are a lot of spaces popping up um, like GME or GCG now. Um, and I'm happy for that. Those are opportunities to collaborate with a wider group of people who can tap into different networks and different folks. And we can all come together and create a collaborative learning experience so that near people coming into the industry have a chance to come in feeling comfortable. And this is also one of the reasons why um, last year, early last year, I said I'm going to try mentoring folks mm. because I want folks to come into the industry being able to feel comfortable and empowered to actually work within the space um, because I definitely had a rough entry into the <laughs> industry. I would say a lot of people have, to be honest with you, and whether it's um, you know issues with financial disparity and underpayment or just mm-hmm. unhealthy work environments. There was a lot of abrasiveness initially coming into the space. And this is why I really want to create environments where people actually have havens where they, they have room to grow and learn and understand how to even set standards for their own work environments within the space, because definitely that's something a lot of folks struggle with. Even I had struggled with that up until um, I would say mid last year uh, when I really was able to definitively set certain standards for work Mm. environments for myself. And a lot of that had to do with like becoming more self-aware, even being more aware of certain mental health um, Mm -hmm. issues that I was having as well and how those would impact the way I work and express myself um, within spaces and not even, not even productivity, not even impacting productivity, but just thought and even hyper fixating on tasks, for example, and how those things affect things long term. So there, you know, there were a lot of things that went into place for me really being able to definitively set standards for myself. And obviously these standards shift and change over time. So I think having a space where people can learn these things and share that information is really great for people just coming in so that they can have a smoother transition into the industry. I think that's super crucial. Absolutely. And how has the community grown since you first founded it? And what kind of milestones stand out to you as you look back? Yeah, so the community has been a bit dormant for a while. We've been Mm. trying to kind of work on a lot of things in the background, like I said, to revisit how we can best grow the space. Um, I think within the initially when we opened, there was a flood of people coming in because there was definitely need for the space. And I think um, there's definitely still need for the space and the different ideas that we have going on in the background and, you know, um, potential partnerships that we may engage in there's there are a lot of ways that this can become much bigger than just a discord space it can become Mm -hmm. a resource that extends beyond that and is ongoing and supportive and nurturing so um i think there are milestones to come and i would Mm -hmm. love to revisit that with y'all you know let's say in a year's time let's see how how we're doing after relaunch You alluded to it a little bit, but what did your own journey into games, working in the game space around communications and um, community building, what did that look like? It's it's one of those things where I'm like, wow, what a journey, <laughs> right? Because the level of growth that I've been able to experience in the last few years of being in the industry has even surprised myself because when I initially came in, it was definitely overwhelming. Mm. The different moving parts in the industry and the different things and that you have to um, become familiar with and just 
starting especially as a freelancer, not necessarily a full-time person is definitely a different experience because mm-hmm. you have to network. Um, and you still have to network as a full-time person, but there's definitely more emphasis on that as you have to get clients. And, you know, there were different experiences that I had with different teams and I'm grateful for some, I did not like some. Mm. Um, and I think that's just, I, I think that's a general experience that people in any working environment will have. Um, and just being able to go through that. I had the pleasure of working with companies from all over the world, the US, UK, Europe, like different places. I I can't say I haven't had like a very unique um, experience in terms of being able to work with people from different backgrounds and cultures. And now also that, that has helped me, like I mentioned earlier, to be more um, more selective in terms of where I work too, in terms of standards and um, even looking into looking more into the team structures and being more intentional about um, how I even present in interviews, because definitely initially when you come in, there's a lot of masking, I mm. think, and I've soft masking in interviews. I'm just, I'm me. Hello. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, and you'll hear other BIPOC people speak of this issue too, and not even just BIPOC, but, just diverse groups as a whole speak of masking and mm-hmm. having to present in a certain way. And, you know, definitely, I think initially coming in, I there was a bit of that where there was, I guess, you know, even just acknowledging my neurodivergence was an issue for me and how that would present in the workplace. I, there were moments where I didn't even know what was going on in my own head, mm-hmm. like with how overwhelmed I was and I couldn't put that into into words, really. I couldn't even understand it myself until there was some more intensive self-reflection there. But mm-hmm. I would say just generally, if I have to describe it, it's been an interesting experience. It's still an interesting experience. And I think I'm definitely in a better position now than when I initially started in the industry, because like I said, better understanding of certain mechanisms within the space. And I've been able to meet a ton of wonderful people as well. That's been my like highlight of working in the gaming industry, being able to meet so many different wonderful people with so many different wonderful experiences and even mm-hmm. experiences that aren't so wonderful. But being able to create spaces where we can comfortably be vulnerable and experience these things and develop authentic friendships, that has been one of my favorite things in the industry um, so far. So despite everything that has happened and everything that will happen, I can say like, even though there have been unpleasant moments, I will say the pleasantries have like trumped everything. I shouldn't have said pleasantries, but you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and why do you think the games industry speaks to you specifically? Like, why do you see yourself working in games versus all the other kinds of communications and marketing work that you could do? That's a good question. I feel like I kind of bing, bang, boom, stumbled into games. And a lot of people <laughs> do say that. Um, Despite the pitfalls of the gaming industry, I will say there's a certain level of um, appeal that it has to a lot of different groups because of the different experiences that are presented through games. And so it will still appeal to a diverse or a more diverse range of people as opposed to a lot of other industries that are very closeted. Mm -hmm. I'm not even, yeah, yeah, closeted or gatekeepy or whatever you want to use for Mm -hmm. that, that. Um, that phrase, but I will say just even coming into the industry, um, being able to meet people with similar lived experiences too, 
Um, and like I said, I think that's just the nature of games. It appeals to so many different people because of how games are. I think that's what appealed to me initially. And also, again, again a lot of community people say this. We kind of stumble, fall, drip, mm-hmm. just boop, 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 into games. <laughs> um, and then yeah. I definitely expanded into the wider tech industry um, shortly afterwards. So I'm, I'm kind of like half and half technically. I feel like gaming is like in the middle of the tech and the entertainment industry. So it's like mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle. So I could probably flip flop between tech and entertainment. I actually do want to mm-hmm. as well. More for like those huge um, YouTube channels. Like think Jubilee. They have like a job opening right now for community manager. Mm-hmm. I applied for that. <laughs> I'll levitate. If we'll I manifest it. that <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, yeah, but I, I think I really like being a freelancer for that reason too. Again, the ability to just experience different teams, especially as I work on my own company, because I'm actually planning on starting an agency too. I think being able to work on these different teams and meet these different people will also help shape the way I form my own company and my own team and how that grows as well. So that's why I really love freelancing too, because there's so many ways you can present within a team and there's so many ways teams can present to you and Mm. so many like there's there these varied experiences and some are bad some are good some are in the middle and the variety of team you know the variety of leaders that i've been able to meet to i think definitely has shaped the way i intend to curate uh a space for people to work and learn and play honestly as a as someone who works in community development community management what do you love about video game communities Mm, I feel like there are definitely a lot of things that I love about them. Probably the top thing being that they appeal to so many like age groups and um, groups, groups in general. I've been able to experience curating communities for kids, adults mm. of different groups. I've had, um, I've had the pleasure of working with people who aren't necessarily native English speakers. And we've been able to like, I've been able to learn languages from even some of the moderator programs that I've developed um, because let's say I have French speaking moderators or mm. moderators that speak German. And I've been able to establish those relationships with them where I can pick up on learning languages from them. And I think that's super cool. And those end up developing into friendships too, because even the team of mods that I um, built while working with Space Ape, uh, we're still friends to this day. Like, and I love that. I love the ability mm-hmm of being able to go beyond just parasocial relationships and actually craft those, you know, those actual authentic relationships with community members, of mm-hmm. course, with boundaries in place, because definitely you can't necessarily be friends with everyone, but you can be friendly with everyone, I mm-hmm. think. So there's a huge, there's a huge difference there. And a lot of that has to do with boundary setting. And so I think just being able to have a, I, I suppose like a common goal in place for a lot of these communities, which is to play and have fun um, and explore games. I think that's a great way to connect with people in a very easy way, especially for those who are more introverted. I find that they nestle into like gaming communities very well too, because there's just a general point of connection right there. So Racine, um, you know, you mentioned as a younger person, not having a ton of access to consoles and, um, you know, gaming being a little bit tougher for you to access at that time. But in your life today, what does your relationship with video games look like? 
yeah, I'm still definitely a PC gamer. I have not. For, I mean, even though I can get a console, I still haven't gotten one for whatever reason. I don't know what's really stopping me. I could either. I'm not going to start this war. If this is a war in the comments, we're not starting this war. <laughs> Do not tell me which console to buy. I will. PC gamers, rise up. <laughs> <laughs> PC uh, like I'm open to suggestions. I'm open to console suggestions, but like, don't I don't don't bully me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but but yeah. So maybe I'll get a console soon and kind of experience that because I remember being on a vacation last year with a group of friends and like they had a console in the Airbnb and so you know one of them handed me the the controller. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> What is like, this? Yeah. <laughs> like I've, I've used a controller before, but it's it's still a, a foreign notion in comparison to like, oh yes, point and click, beep boop, problem solved. Now I have to click this. I have to move this finger dexterity. Oh no! Um, so, but yeah, no, I, I definitely need to get used to a controller. Um, I mean, honestly, I have a ton of respect for keyboard gamers, people who are able to be really dexterous playing PC games uh, using a keyboard and mouse. Like, I I don't know. You're smarter than me. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the same thing for people who are purely PC gamers looking at console gamers. They're like, fuck, I yeah, more power to you. I can't do that. <laughs> well, sometimes because then you have the hybrid PC console players who can do both, and then you're like, okay, yeah, you have ascended. You have ascended. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so on this podcast, we like to invite folks to talk about games that had an impact on their lives or are super important to them. Um, and you had quite a few, you had a pretty good list of names that you gave us. Um, you can't ask me to give you a list because I will, oh God. You'll give it, yeah. We got what we asked for. Yeah, a very eclectic collection of games. Um, so just sort of speaking at a high level, like what do you look for out of the games that you play? What draws you to a game? Yeah, so I'm I'm definitely open to a lot of different kind of games. Like I do definitely have a preference for like I said, open world experiences. Um, but then also I've had a love for like these single player experiences that delve into the different aspects of the human consciousness and experience. Mm -hmm. And I really love being able to play those. So even through when the darkness comes, you get to um, kind of experience the, you know, the inner workings of a developer and the variety of ex emotions that they experience through mm. their developments. And it's, it's such a, it's a game that seems so simplistic in nature. But when you really actually play it, like when you initially look at the premise, you're like, oh my gosh, um, basically sad game dev. That's what you, that's what some people might interpret from the description. Mm. But when you actually play the game, you go through the experiences. It's all really heavily curated to allow you to even get a percentage of what that game dev um, experienced. And mm. even not just in game development, but in their personal life and how those emotions manifested for them and how they then reproduce that in a gaming experience. I think that's, to put it really simplistically, that's some good shit. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> I, I love experiences like that where 
you're able to really tap into the feeling of different people and their different lived experiences. Those are games that I probably value above all else. And even Rome, that, oh my gosh, I'm not going to give any spoilers for the ending. I didn't give any spoilers for the ending of When the Darkness Comes. I want to also preface this with like, if you're experiencing um, any mental health issues or you struggle with certain things like, you know, suicidal ideation, just be mindful of playing that game because the ending presents a choice that does relate to suicide. So mm. just be very mindful of that. Um, and then for Rome, that was, that was an experience. Yeah, I tell us Rome. about Rome. That game looks wild. I play it religiously every year. I'm sorry. Mm. Like I, every couple months I'm back on that game. I don't wow. care how many times I've played it. It's literally even though there's there are no new additions to it, every time I play it, it I still feel more and more connected to the experience. I love that game, right? Mm-hmm. So you're essentially playing um, first person perspective um, from the view of uh, I think she, she was an award winning architect, yes, and um, her experience with realizing that she died, mm-hmm. basically. So you get to go through the different stages of grief and the way that's portrayed, like you actually connect with the character. And what I even loved more about Rome was the fact that they used living architecture to convey some of those thoughts and feelings. Hmm. That is some scary ass shit more than any other type of traditional horror that made me shit bricks. <laughs> what, the, the using the house as, or the architecture as a function to create yeah. horror. I love that. There are other mm. games like that as well. Um, like Inception but, type shit? Yeah. That, <laughs> some, but but I for some reason, that's even more daunting because then it goes into blight um, and how that impacts the feelings of your environment and the energy that your environment creates, right? Mm. Um, or the energy that you've left in your environment because there have been... Um, games about unoccupied spaces and the the feelings that they resonate and, and things like that or the energy that they resonate or the frequency that they resonate at and the way rome is able to just so beautifully and this was a student made game so beautifully and intricately design an experience where even the way the fucking chairs are positioned just Every single attention to detail and the slow deterioration of the space and how it becomes incrementally more chaotic as the main character realizes, oh my god, I'm actually dead and I died in a really horrifying way. Like there, I have played few games that can make me sit back in my chair and go, oh my god, I'm horrified. Like mm-hmm. it's not even through visual horror because there are like not like typical gore horror but Mm -hmm. like there's certain aspects of visual horror that are present in the game but just just the emotional and psychological horror you'll mainly find me playing games like that as well because i find that you can have very human experiences through psychological horror games that are based in real spaces so i like to have real experiences and real relations through games and rome really did that for me Mm -hmm. because when the darkness comes you get that perspective from the game dev and their life growing up. And then from Rome, it's a completely different experience where now the main character has to come to terms um, with everything that is going on. Like everything that has happened to them up until this point, even um, seeing the news reports of their death. That's 
some I don't even know how to explain it. <laughs> Something I thought that was really interesting is not only is Rome a student project, and that's R-H-O-M-E for the listeners who might want to look this game up. Um, it was designed in and built in just 16 weeks. And so I think that's just really cool that this is a game uh, racing that you visit every year that has had such a huge impact on you, um, considering like the scope and the constraints around which it was built. That's just uh, just really cool to see. Yeah, I think, like I said, any games that have real human experiences, even though there's like an element of fantasy, obviously, to them, you know, not being alive and having to go through that process of acknowledging that and, you know, um, entering the afterlife. um, I think it's really just leading up to that point. Those things can be mirrored in our life in terms of the way we have to deal with certain journeys and the different stages of processing we have to encounter while going through these journeys. So it's, it's a really great way to highlight some very typically human experiences, regardless of background, anyone can have these experiences. And it, I think more than calling it horror, it's just reality. And I Mm. think to a lot of people, reality is horrifying. Mm. And a lot of these games can be very much grounding. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy here, but like, you know, like some aspects of reality can really be daunting. And um, Mm -hmm. sometimes playing these games can really be grounding and also help me to connect to some emotions and some experiences and feelings that maybe previously I couldn't put words to. And somehow this game where these games have been able to replicate those experiences in a way that's tangible and easy to process mm-hmm. in a sense. Absolutely. There was one more game on your shortlist that also I felt kind of fit in with the themes in um, where the dark, when the darkness comes in Rome. And that game was called Nuts. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that game to us because it completely went under my radar. I had not heard at all about this game. I believe it came out last year. Um, and it's this kind of surveillance mystery set in the forest where you're this researcher who's recording squirrels and trying to, you know, track their activities and their nesting habits and whatnot. And slowly it kind of comes to pass that things are not as they seem, that that these squirrels are up to something maybe a bit more mischievous. (laughs) Um, I was so interested reading the premise and watching the trailer for this game. And so I was wondering if you could speak more about it and uh, your relationship with it. Yeah, so nuts. Um, Actually, a close friend in the games industry that I had worked with um, at Happy Volcano, uh, Almut, she had sent me the game, the key, the key for the game to play on stream because I had I had relaunched my Twitch channel at the time mm-hmm. and I wanted games made by diverse teams. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm like, it's a squirrel game. How how could this go? How could this possibly go wrong? It's a game about monitoring squirrels. Oh my god! It was not just about monitoring squirrels. <laughs> it went a lot deeper than that, and I think it went a little bit too deep for a game that's supposed to be monitoring squirrels. Like, oh my god. um yeah so gosh i mean when you start playing the game you're like okay yeah we're just taking photos of squirrels and we're engaging in these different environments i want to make a point of saying the color schemes in the game impact the overall experience plus the audio and everything it was just a well-rounded beautiful cinematic experience and even though it's it's like it's supposed to be a game about taking photos of squirrels, it gets so much deeper than that when you realize it delves into things like 
emotional, dis- like not emotional, sorry. Well, kind of, yeah. Emotional and environmental destruction mm. through big corporations and just how these impact um, the living environments of different animals, right? Mm. Those are some things that are tapped into. And also, you know, even at points where in the game, things felt hopeless. I think I literally fell down a cliff in the game. Oh and um, we're trapped in this spot and we see all of these squirrels and like squirrels with dynamite. Like there's there's so many different moving parts in the game. And it became so much more than what I thought it was going to be. And the ending was weird. Mm. The ending was weird. And I'm going to, this is the one spoiler I'm going to make in, in this podcast. The ending was weird. I ended up on a boat with a bunch of squirrels and a bunch of nuts in the boat. And at the end of the game, I think I, I probably have it in my stream clip somewhere. I literally said, what? the fuck <laughs> this was not just a game about taking photos of squirrels <laughs> yeah i love when uh, a simple premise there's like this creeping realization that you're step you've stepped into something deeper and it uh i don't know it always adds a layer extra layer t- to me of like subverting my expectations and i i kind of love when a game is able to do that um i mean very mixed review i think i felt on nuts but maybe something that i <laughs> may or may not check out uh, or maybe i'll just watch your stream <laughs> it was it was a great it was a great experience i will personally say that i loved it there is an there are elements of challenge in there in terms of where you have to place your cameras how many cameras you have and just the way it's sort of strategic too um it's supposed to be so simple. You're like, I just have to put my camera blah, blah. It It's really interesting in the sense that you have to be very precise and intentional about where you put your camera, what you get to observe. Um, the, the photos that you take, the timestamps that you need to take these photos at, it's, it's a lot. And I love mm-hmm. it. And to me, it was a really good experience. And I mean, the people that were watching the stream enjoyed it too. Like they, they literally said, if you don't stream the rest of this, we're going to fight. Like I had, <laughs> I had people DMing me like, we need to see the end of this game. You're going to finish this. And I said, I have to anyways. I can't just not finish this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even too deep. No, I was saying 10 out of 10 though would recommend. <laughs> okay, great. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 would recommend get those nuts, find out what gets you on that boat. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about Entropia Universe, which you mentioned earlier, and seems kind of a departure from these other games because it's more of like a space simulator, right? Yeah, so it's an open world um, experience, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's probably, I think, the only real like um, MMORPG I have on the list. So that, like I mentioned, is probably one of the first MMORPGs I've played, really. And um, Entropy Universe made up a core part of, I guess, my early gaming history. Mm. When I really think about it, how many hours I had put into playing the game to the point where I'd be up at night just on Entropy Universe doing different things. I suppose you could call it a space simulator, but it's not necessarily limited to that because you have different planets that you can access in the universe. Um, It also functions on kind of a real world economy in a sense. So it's a, a... real cash economy game for some reason mm. i forgot that term and so at the time what you did in the game you could earn from that right so that was part of the reason why people were attracted to that game and one of the biggest like virtual 
assets ever, like the most expensive virtual asset ever bought. That record is held by Entropy Universe. So a lot of people were drawn to the game because, oh, you can earn money from it. Um, I wasn't really like hyper fixated on that. I just thought it was a super cool experience. And it was a really big game in terms of like the amount of space it would take up on your laptop Mm. and just the vastness of the universe and the variety of different planets that you could, uh, you could visit. I mean, I think I really loved, um, I think it's called Tulin. I hope it's, I hope, I hope I said that right. Uh, let me just quickly Google that because yes, it's Tulin. So that was one of my favorite planets in Entropy Universe because it takes some inspiration from like um, Middle Eastern design, mm. and I thought that was beautiful because when you land on the planet, because you have to get an actual like either a quad wing interceptor or any other space vehicle that you can fly in the game and you can go there. But when you're actually landing and you get to look over the entire planet, it's just a gorgeous view. I think if you could do it in VR, that would be even mm. better. I don't know if they've like modified the game now to where you can use VR, but I would totally, totally play it um, in VR as well. I think that was the biggest thing for me, the sight and the scenery and how beautiful the game looked, even though they were using an outdated engine at the time, the mm. game still looked so gorgeous. Um, and even like the staff supporting the game was pretty good. So there were just so many different aspects of the game that I love, but the biggest one, aside from the collaborative effort that you can have in the game, with, like the different, um, people that you meet was definitely the scenery. I would just spend hours driving in that game or flying. <laughs> I, I would just get, I would just get lost. I'd turn on some music in the background, whether it was wow. on YouTube or whatever, and I would just drive and oh. drive and drive and see where I went. And of course, mobs destroyed my vehicle. Oh, <laughs> Which was very expensive. Ouch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was it was a great experience. I love long drives, by the way. Whether mm. it's flights, drives, I just get lost in it. I zone out. Mm. It's a great experience. Me too. I feel like if they just go by in a snap, because I just go into the realm of my own mind. But uh, yeah. um, do you feel like your love of this big MMO was sort of laying the foundation of your future working in community development and connecting communities and building them? Yeah. Because I remember I wanted to actually work with that team at one point, like the devs of Entropy Universe. They had like a some like a customer support or they they had like a very specific name for that team. Hmm. Um, but I had wanted to get involved in that, and I ended up actually working for a team that was supposed to be their competitor uh, called Virtuverse, who have a similar design, I guess, but they're not as big yet. Hmm. Um, I done some volunteering for them early on and so that definitely influenced the path i took into gaming because that was when i really was like yeah maybe i could actually get involved in the gaming industry and do something here mm-hmm. awesome racine uh where can folks follow your work and keep up with what you're doing that is a good question so i am on twitter um I'm a very eccentric person, as you can tell. I'm sorry, don't take that seriously. Um, so my, my username is Fibonacci Recoil. Fun, yay! Um, I have like my Twitch link there. I refuse to even remotely try to spell any of that out right now because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's Saturday. My work brain is off. My every brain is off. Let me just Saturday. That is it. <laughs> you can also find me on LinkedIn too. Um, and pretty much once you find me on Twitter, you can find me anywhere, really. <laughs> awesome. Racine, it was lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I will probably be back soon. <laughs> With more chaos next time. Absolutely. <laughs>
up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod, where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month, plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on Twitter and Instagram at pixel therapy pod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythopodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Um, as many folks may know by now, on February 24th, uh, 2022, Russia launched a full-scale military invasion into Ukraine. For the past days, cities have been bombed and civilian infrastructures have been destroyed. The number of civilian victims, including children, continues to rise, and LGBTQIA plus Ukrainians are also facing additional stress as they try to navigate this emergency. Um, we wanted to bring your attention to an organization um, that's specifically trying to advocate for LGBTQ plus Ukrainians who are finding it especially difficult to either access resources or escape um, the country, um, especially trans folks with identification documents who don't match their gender identity, um, find that they cannot pass internal checkpoints in the country. Um, many also don't have uh, a biometric passport uh, matching their travel passport gender um, and this biometric passport is required for entry into the European Union. Um, the uh, process of obtaining um, this kind of official documentation in mainland Ukraine has been difficult even in peacetime um, before this event. And so many trans folks are finding that they're excluded from civil defense measures like shelters or humanitarian aid. Um based on what's going on with their IDs. Um, mismatching ID documents can lead to denial of service, as well as suspicion of fraud, harassment, even violence. Um, so fearing discrimination, many trans folks um, are finding that they're foregoing their right to seek assistance. Um, so there's an organization called Insight Ukraine um, that has been established for years to provide um, resources and community to LGBTQ Ukrainians. Right now, they are starting an urgent donation campaign specifically to collect funds for LGBTQI plus people in Ukraine to provide emergency shelter, relocation assistance, food, and to cover their basic needs. Um, so to, to find out more about this um, organization, Insight Ukraine, you can visit insight-ukraine.org um, and check out their website. They also have a big donation button um, on their site and you can uh, directly support uh, this initiative and, and these funds um, as well as, you know, continuing to support um, individuals on the ground and organizations in Ukraine helping, helping everyone. Um, we just wanted to take a moment to specifically highlight to um, the needs of especially vulnerable populations within Ukraine. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel, Pixel Therapy. Yeah. Bye bye. <laughs>